If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the famed 12th century Muslim ruler Saladin, whose life is the subject of a new biography by Professor Jonathan Phillips of Royal Holloway University. In conversation with Jonathan was the medieval historian and author Dan Jones, and their discussion took place at Dan's home near London. It's a beautiful spring afternoon in Surrey, and I was just out in my garden uh, putting some dahlias into a plant pot, and who should knock at the door but uh, one of the world's foremost crusades experts, Professor Jonathan Phillips. Um, Jonathan's the author of some of the best books on the Crusades around, including books about the Second Crusade, about the Fourth Crusade, about all the Crusades. Um, He edits the journal Crusades. If you want to know about the Crusades, then Jonathan is your man. He's a professor of crusading history at Royal Holloway University of London. And uh, I'm just very privileged to have him sitting in my kitchen uh, to talk about his new book, which is a fantastic biography called The Life and Legend of the Sultan Saladin. I've read it. uh, I've reviewed it. I've loved it. It really is a sort of model of popular biography uh, and crusading history. So, um, now I've built you up, Jonathan. You better not disappoint uh, <laughs> listeners. Um, my first question, I suppose, is for those who don't know, who is Saladin um, and why does he matter? And that, I know that's a big question, but let's, so let's start with the first part. Who is Saladin? Saladin was the leader of the medieval Near East in the 12th century. And in 1187, he recovered Jerusalem for the people of Islam, and that was setting right in their eyes what happened on the First Crusade, which captured Jerusalem in 1099. So the recovery of the third most important city for Islam in 1187 is something that sets his name in the history books forever. But he is, down the centuries, he symbolises the resistance of the Near East to the West, 
crusaders coming in, taking lands, conquering people. This is the man who drew together the Near East, resisted the Westerners, and then recovered Jerusalem. So that is his crucial, crucial legacy. And the achievement that leads to that is the capture of Jerusalem. So there's a man here um, to be discussed, and there's also a myth surrounding him. And in some ways, that's always the best uh, type of subject for a biography because there's so much unpacking and, and sifting of material and comparing it um, to, to mythology to be done. Why did you decide to write about Saladin now? Yeah, it's really is, is fascinating how this man's memory and legacy have survived down the centuries. I mean, actually, the, the idea came to me. I was lucky enough to be in Damascus in 2009, walking along the street, and I saw a sign for Saladin the Ballet. <laughs> how, how can you resist? And I certainly couldn't. And so uh, I went to the opening night, and it was a sort of musical dance performance, and it was the recovery of Jerusalem against the sort of largely drunken crusaders, I have to say. By the end of it, everybody's clapping along. There's no surprises in the story. It's what, in a sense, everybody wants to see. And in a sense, it, it represents what the Syrian regime wanted, the defeat of the West and the recovery of Jerusalem. And in one way, that, that's not very surprising. But it really made me think as to how this memory and legacy has survived down the centuries. And... I got interested in the different ways it's been represented, who's invoked Saladin, why they have, what parts of his life and career or character they're looking at. And then, yes, you do start moving into, you know, areas of, of sort of uh, distortion, mythology. But at the core of it, I think, is, is the point about the recovery of Jerusalem. But there's, there's lots of other ideas around it. So let's go back to the beginning and give me a sense of um, the world that produced Saladin. Where was he from? Who were his family? What were the times in which he grew up? Saladin was a Kurd. Uh, so in one way, he's a, he's a slight outsider to the main sort of dynamic of the Near East at the time. I think if you were to characterise the Near East in the 12th century, you'd say it was chaotic. And by the Near East, we mean Syria, Palestine, Egypt, as yeah, we call them effectively, today? That's, and, and Iraq. Uh, that's effectively the sort of territories that, that are interesting and, and where he spent most of his life. And where, from a Western perspective, uh, and probably an Eastern perspective, the Crusades are happening. Yes, absolutely. I'd say this area, the Near East, is, is, is an area of sort of chaos. In the mid-11th century, a group of Seljuk Turks had come in and established some kind of uh, unified power over the region. But at the end of the 11th century, it was a year called the year of the death of caliphs and commanders. And there's a lot of, um, should we say, demise of senior figures, not all of natural causes, and this kind of power base fragments. And so by the time the First Crusade turns up in 1099, it's a, it's a very sort of regional, uh, local city-states are emerging. There's not really a sort of unified power to, to face off the Crusaders. And that's one of the reasons why they're able to succeed, because they're not facing a, a big, powerful enemy. And they establish themselves in the Near East. If you were to go into somewhere like Aleppo and Damascus, and you say that's in the Muslim Near East, the, the population there is incredibly mixed. You've got Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, so some splinter groups of the Shia, Eastern Christians, you've got Jacobites, Nestorians, Maronites, Greek Orthodox, you've got Jews, and then on top of that, you've got the Western Europeans coming in and taking the coast. So it's a real melting pot. And that, to me, is one of the sort of fascinating things about looking at this, this area and, and this era of history is that, is that real mix. But then uh, within that, it's the Sunni Muslims who are the dominant force in Syria, Palestine, as we, as we would see it now. And as I say, Saladin was, was a Kurd. He 
comes from a very uh, equestrian kind of society. And the Kurds are used by the Turkish rulers as their warriors. I mean, these Kurds are great horsemen and they are, they are great people to have in your army and to end up leading parts of your army. So Saladin's from a family of soldiers. Is that, is that too simplistic? Uh, I think they're a bit, sort of, a bit more high-end than that, in a sense that they're, they're administrators, regional governors, governors of, say, a small town, like Tikrit in, in modern Iraq, which is where Saladin was born. Okay, so Saladin's born in Tikrit in roughly? 1137. In 1137. Um, and what's his path out of this chaotic world that you've described with, you know, fractured between different city-states and different peoples and different powers. What is his path to what will eventually be preeminence over this entire region? His, his family's used by some of the Turkic rulers. There's a man called Zengi, who is a very powerful, uh, very unpleasant man who spends a lot of his career fighting his fellow Muslims, who starts carving out his own sort of dynastic territory around the sort of modern Syria and Iraq border. And he uses Saladin's family in his military forces. He's succeeded um, in 1146 by his son, a man called Nur al-Din, who really is crucial to Saladin's story. And Nur al-Din is the man who begins to give the jihad, the Muslim holy war, the counter-crusade, its real intellectual and military energy against the Christians, or the Franks, as they're called, who are in the Holy Land in the Near East. And so it's using Saladin's family as, as a core part of his, his warrior elite. So Nur al-Din, who you mentioned then, is by no means as famous, certainly in the West, as Saladin. And, you know, you read a lot of writers would say that's the wrong way round. <laughs> and that actually Nur al-Din, uh, son of Zengi, was the man who laid a lot of the groundwork for what was to come under Saladin. Do you think that's fair? I think it is. I think he did a lot of the hard work that Saladin then builds upon, and in some ways appropriates for himself and his family. Because Nur al-Din is a Turkic family, uh, and Saladin is Kurdish. But it's under Nur al-Din that the sort of intellectual energy, the, the religious drive of the jihad gets going. He's a, he's a very religious man. He gets hold of the city of Damascus, the great city of Damascus, and makes that, if you like, the sort of theological base of the counter-crusade, the intellectual base of the counter-crusade. He sponsors houses of justice, a lot of madrasas, teaching colleges, a lot of sort of jihad propaganda is generated under him and, and he sponsors. And so, and that's the environment Saladin grows up in. We don't know much about his, his early life, but he does grow up in, spend quite a lot of his teens and 20s in Damascus. So that's the kind of culture that he's involved in. Nur al-Din's also a, a, a strong warrior and he goes into battle against the Franks quite a lot and, and is very keen to recover Jerusalem for Islam and, and is active in trying to do so. Just to stay on that point very briefly before we move, um, move on to Saladin's career again, I think a lot of people would be surprised to think that uh, jihad and crusade didn't exist in parallel from the beginning of the crusades uh, and that actually it's a few decades after the first crusaders arrive and take Jerusalem that there's a sense of the Muslim world as a whole being uh, rallied towards the counter-crusade. Because we're, we're so often fed this idea, aren't we, um, that uh, the crusades are really a sort of war of civilizations and, and two peoples going against one another in, in unified blocks. And, and that bit of the story, which is only coming together around the time of Saladin's birth, um, I mean, maybe we'll come back to that point um, later when we talk about Saladin's legacy. But I think it's really interesting that this isn't the case 
around the time of Saladin's childhood that uh, Muslims and Christians have just been at war on block. Yeah, I mean, the jihad is a basic part of Islam. It's in the Quran. So it's centuries old by the time the First Crusade turns up. The First Crusade is invented in the mind of Pope Urban II in 1095 when he launches the First Crusade. So they have a sort of distinct, uh, distinctly different sort of heritage, if you see what I mean, apart from the obvious. But the, when the First Crusade turns up, the jihad, the idea of the noble classes and the religious classes working together was just not there. We find some preachers, a preacher in Damascus, who rants against this, and he has a tiny, tiny audience. It's just not that, that link between the religious classes and the noble classes, which sustains the First Crusade, is not there in the Muslim Near East. And Nur al-Din is the man who starts to glue those two things together. The interests and the aspirations of the nobles are brought in line with the aspirations of the religious classes. Okay, so how does Saladin's career develop under Nur al-Din? Under Nur al-Din, the, the key man actually is, is Saladin's uncle, who's a man called Shurku, uh, who's a big fat man with a cataract in one eye, uh, who's Nur al-Din's great warrior, a really sort of tough guy leading, leading his troops. In the 1160s, there ends up being effectively a competition to control Egypt between the Syrian Muslims and the Crusaders, the Franks in Jerusalem. And why they're after Egypt is because, first of all, it's Shia. So in a sense, the Sunni Muslims want to take it over, but mainly because it's wealthy. Egypt, with around the fertility of the Nile, is fantastically wealthy. And whoever gets control of that, as well as the strategic issues, will be able to dominate the other side. So you've got this sort of weak um, entity there, and it's a competition as to who can take it over first. So that's a competition between the Crusaders on the one hand and uh, Nur al-Din and the Sunni Muslims of greater Syria on, on the other hand. And it's Shurku who's the man who's going to lead that. And so uh, there's, there's a series of campaigns and it ends up with Shurku becoming the vizier of Egypt, which is basically the ruler of Egypt uh, in effect, uh, in January 1169. Saladin's part of his army uh, and is there as a, as a pretty prominent figure there. But two months later, Shurku eats far too much and dies. Uh, we know he's a very large man and he just went for it a bit too heavily. But there is then a decision to be made. Who's going to succeed him? And into this position of power emerges Saladin. And to me, this is really a bit of the story that's not often looked at, by, particularly by crusade historians such as myself, who tend to concentrate on the later era when he is fighting, fighting the Franks. But when I was researching this book, the idea of this, this, this fairly inexperienced young man, an outsider, a Kurd, a Sunni Kurd in Shia-ruled Egypt, how on earth did he manage to survive politically, let alone prosper to the point where 18 years later, he's able to recover Jerusalem for Islam? I thought that that challenge that faced him there was something that really drew me in. Is it easy to... Um to make any substantial uh, or concrete judgments about Saladin's character? Because character surely is essential to what you're talking about here. We're in the 1160s, 1170s. Here's a young man, an outsider in all the ways you've described, who just suddenly emerges at, at the top of um, Egyptian government. What can you say about Saladin that explains that? It's quite hard, in a sense, to, to write about the history of Saladin because the nature of some of the sources that we've got. We've got a couple of biographies of him, uh, one of them that's translated as the rare and excellent history of Saladin by, by one of his sort of close administrators. And that kind of gives you a, a key, as, uh, an indication as to which way it's going to go. And there's a 
maybe a worry in a sense that these are often very uncritical or potentially uncritical. And and I just sort of story saying, what a great man he is. He's an ideal ruler. He's almost faultless. And clearly in many respects, he's not. But on the other hand, you have to explain why he succeeded and why he achieved what he did. So we can look at those sources a bit critically and also we can um, augment them with perhaps sources from the Western side. And we have a few of those to bring into play. And also other sorts of writing. And looking at Egypt, it's a very sort of an area with a, quite a rich administrative history, which doesn't sound very exciting, I have to say, and didn't immediately grab me. But Egypt is ruled by the Nile, really. And a sense how you control the Nile, how you exploit it or try to exploit it, does leave quite a lot of administrative records. And one of the secrets of Saladin's early success is that he engages with how Egypt's ruled. He wants to understand what he's got. And I think that was, uh, again, a very sort of interesting thing to follow. He immediately gets various um, financial systems on a much better footing so he can get more money. And that generosity is a very, very sort of famous part of his character. So he gains relatively quickly a, a, a deep understanding of Egyptian finance, of the, the mechanics of government, of the, the way the economy works. How exactly does he come to such prominence? What's his, what's his path to power? His path to power is he succeeded his uncle Shurku, and he then manages also through the support of his close Kurdish family. This is, again, crucial to Saladin's success. The core group around him really do stick with him. And you look at lots of other contemporary families, look at Henry II of England, you know, the, the boys don't behave well. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the lads are very, very difficult for him. There's so many other contemporary families where, where there's a lot of sort of struggle between them. But Saladin's group sticked with him. They see he's a great figurehead. He's obviously very good at dealing with them and they're incredibly loyal to him. So that's sort of core of people around him. But alongside that, he's also very good at, at having a good kind of close secretariat and administrative group. If you're, if you're good, you'll say, come and work for me. I don't care who you've worked for before, you worked for the previous regime in Egypt or you worked for the Caliph of Baghdad, you're the best, join me. And he's quite persistent. And so he's got this kind of superstar administrative team around him, which is very good at advising him. It's also very good at developing propaganda on his behalf. Now, let's take the story on a step. Nur al-Din has sent Saladin and his uncle and this this group around him who we usually refer to as the Ayyubids after Saladin's father, Ayyub. He sent them down to Egypt effectively to do a job, go get Egypt for me. And they've ended up getting Egypt kind of for themselves. Yes. Is, that, is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, for all Saladin as the, as the great hero of Islam, which he undoubtedly is, he was also a dynastic empire builder. And he very quickly uses his position in Egypt to start appointing his family to key positions there. His father becomes the treasurer uh, and lots of other sort of powerful positions held by that group. And in one sense, that's practical. They're loyal, they're good, they work with him. But he is pretty obviously uh, feathering a dynastic nest there and uh, and a very nice one too. And that does alarm Nur al-Din, who from time to time sort of says, look, you've got to come and help me fight the Franks. And Saladin well, not today. Mm-hmm. And and he always just sort of uh, avoids doing it because he's worried that Nur al-Din will perhaps maybe not take him prisoner, but sort of strip him of his powers. He, Nur al-Din can see that his protégé is getting very, very powerful and wealthy, and it worries him. And there is a point in 1174 where Nur al-Din has had enough of this, 
and is raising troops to go and march against Saladin when Nur al-Din dies of natural causes. Yeah. And I think this is an example of something that, that is quite an interesting part of Saladin's career and his good luck. He is the benefit of good fortune on many occasions, you might say, his uncle dying, Nur al-Din dying just as he's about to launch a civil war against Saladin. And then just at the same time, the king of Jerusalem dies, a man called Amalric, and he's succeeded by a teenage boy who's got leprosy. Mm. So a lot of advantages, fortunate advantages, do come to Saladin. But as they say in sports, you make your own luck. Um, and it tends to be, you know... He certainly the, does. The, ...the way of things that, that good luck tends to accrue to um, people who have the wherewithal to take advantage yes, of it. absolutely. So you, you mentioned we're in 1174, uh, a pivotal date in Saladin's career because his uh, hitherto, quote-unquote, master, Nur al-Din, dies... The king of Jerusalem, you know, an accomplished, um, stout, somewhat gruff man called Amaric, dies. And here we have Saladin now entrenched in power in Egypt uh, and with the two most powerful um, potential rivals to him both dead. What happens from that point on? Take us through the rest of the 1170s. Yeah, from 1174 down to when he defeats the, the Franks at 1187, he spends a lot of his time fighting, cajoling, pressuring Sunni Muslims. And that sounds odd to us. You think, hey, hang on, shouldn't you be fighting the Franks or the Crusaders? But he has got to try to, he's working hard to usurp, to take over Nur al-Din's lands. His argument is that he wants Damascus, Aleppo and Mosul, because with the resources of them and only with the resources of them, will he be able to take on the Franks and recover Jerusalem for Islam? So that's his argument. I'm the best man for the job. I'm dedicated to this. My spiritual advisors, you know, this is what we should do. Of course, Nur al-Din's family <laughs> sees it differently, and they, they want to sort of get rid of this usurper or, or control their own lands. But it's something that Saladin very, very slowly throughout the 1170s, 1180s, brings pressure to bear and does eventually manage to get control of Nuruddin's former territories in Syria and Iraq. But he faces criticism for that. You're fighting fellow Muslims. And why on earth aren't you fighting the Franks? And what's the, well, the, I think you've already given the answer to that, which is that the, the most important strategic goal for anyone really at this time is to take control of greater Syria and Iraq and Egypt at the same time. Because the wealth and resource that you have will enable you to take on the Franks and defeat them. But the Franks are, he does have to fight them from time to time. And it has to be said, he's not always very successful. Uh, there's a battle called Montgizard, uh, which is now in, sort of, in Israel, and he's thrashed. He's absolutely crushed at the Battle of Montgizard. And it's quite interesting, a bit of PR spin. His sort of PR team send the news back to Kara. Don't worry, uh, he's all right. His family's all right. And there's a very experienced administrator there who said, nah, I don't like the smell of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think that's wrong. And so it turns out to be. So this is a real blow to him. You know, he's all sort of, I'm building up my empire, fighting fellow Muslims so that I can defeat the Franks. And he's, he's whipped by them. Mm -hmm. Things do start to change though. There's another um, a place called Jacob's Ford, which is a castle again, in, in northern Israel now. And the Franks build this castle just about a day and a bit's ride from Damascus. Really aggressive kind of inflammatory move. Hey, look, you know, we're that close to your great city. What are you going to do about it? 
And Saladin eventually besieges it, breaks into it, massacres many of the defenders. Saladin's known for mercy, but on this occasion, no, it's too much of an affront. So he starts turning the tide a little bit. It's often said that there's a point in Saladin's career um, where he seems to switch gears, if you like, from um, this job of trying to unify Egypt and Syria, mainly by attacking other Muslim, Sunni Muslim rulers, uh, to really focusing his efforts on the Franks. And, and often you see it written that this is, he gets very sick and recovers and, and has a sort of uh, near deathbed realisation that uh, he'd better use his time wisely. I mean, do you buy into that? It's a nice literary device, and I suppose an experience like that would, I'm sure, would focus people's minds. The date that's often ascribed to this is 1185-86, when he's trying to get hold of Mosul up in the north, and he finally does so. But I think he's been working towards it for, for, for many, many years anyway. He's got this basis in, in the, the religiosity of the time, the, the, the atmosphere of jihad, coupled with his own dynastic ambitions, and that focus on Jerusalem has been there for a while. I think once he's got hold of Mosul, he also has Aleppo, Damascus, and Egypt. He is then a, in a position where he can take on the Franks. He's also got to deliver, basically. And he's spent so long saying, I'm the man to defeat the Franks. Well, do it then. You absolutely have to deliver. So this is the mid-1180s we're in now. And, um, I mean, let's let's actually just cut to the point at which Saladin really bursts, apparently, permanently into the Western imagination. I'm sure that, uh, he, you know, he would have been a great figure in Islamic history regardless. Um, but the reason that Saladin, or one of the big reasons that Saladin is, is remembered in Europe, in Britain, in the States today, is because of what happens in 1187. So take us through that, uh, those events. Having spent 13 years building up his fragile coalition of the Muslim Near East, Saladin gathers his forces and invades the Frankish lands. He really has got to bring them to battle. Otherwise, people will lose faith in him as the man who can defeat the Christians. And in the summer of 1187, he manages to convince them that they need to fight. Previous campaigns, they've been staying just outside his reach. He's invaded their lands, and, and they're like a sort of two boxers, and you just stay out of sort of punching range, and you avoid, stating the obvious, being hit. Mm -hmm. uh, but Saladin does actually need to connect with the Christians. And so he besieges a town called Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. He captures it and imprisons at the Lady, of Tiberius there, and this is a challenge to the Franks to, to, to release this, this woman, but also because they don't want their lands invaded and destroyed and ravaged again and again, which is what Saladin's doing. So really, he is, he's trying very hard to be inflammatory. Come on, then. This, this is something you've got to do something about. There's a very famous scene near a place called the Springs of Safaria, where the Franks have gathered their army, and they have a big council of war with the king and the leading nobles and the military orders, and they decide not to fight. That's a very prudent move. But late at night, the master of the Templars, a very uh, very aggressive man, comes and convinces the king that it would be foolish not to, uh, he would be cowardly, and that he would probably lose his throne to people if he, if he didn't stand up to the Muslims. So having gone to bed, the camp has gone to bed saying, OK, we're staying put. The following morning they wake up with, we're going to march. And what their task is, is to march about 32 kilometres we're in mid-July in sort of modern northern Israel and march across a waterless plateau largely to get to Tiberias. 
it's a very, very foolish decision. There's hardly any sort of places to get water. The Muslims will control them or, or pollute them. But they do it. Uh, and they set out. And this actually is Saladin's great moment. He's sprung the trap at last. He's got an advantage in numbers. He's got brilliantly well-organized troops. He's got lots of water, lots of arrows. You know, he's, he's equipped to do this. And this Frankish army moves very slowly across this plateau. There's a lot of inexperienced troops there. Saladin's men are on their small mounted ponies, firing arrows at them, really wearing them down. And, and this Frankish army gets slower and slower, moving across the plateau, almost no water. The Muslims can pour water out in front of them to just, yeah, we've got it and you haven't, look. And they set fire to the dry, the dry landscape there, with smoke blowing into the Franks to make it even worse for them. And they really do just grind them literally to a halt um, within a day and a half. The Franks end up on this, the, the battle's called the Battle of Hattin, which is an old volcano uh, with sort of a broken rim, and the Franks gather in that for a last stand. They have a couple of goes at getting, getting close to Saladin, but finally the, the, the king's tent falls and the true cross, their great talisman, is captured. And that's it. Saladin has defeated the Franks. So this, this momentous battle on the 4th of July, 1187, Battle of Hattin, uh, at which not only is a massive Frankish army defeated by Saladin's, um, Saladin's armies with the loss of hundreds, thousands of lives, hundreds, thousands of captives sold into slavery, taken prisoner, you know, beheaded if they're members of the military orders, whatever. Say a little bit about Saladin's capture of the True Cross and why that was so important. What was the True Cross and what did it mean to get it? In, in the religiosity of the age, relics were, were very, very important, things connected with the lives of particularly Christ. And the True Cross was a large chunk of wood which had been discovered by the Crusaders when they got hold of Jerusalem and was believed to be the wood or part of the cross upon which Christ was crucified. So an incredibly central relic to the Christian faith. And it was housed in a great silver casing and was their lucky talisman. And they carried it into dozens of battles and it did the trick for them, but not in July, 1187. So this great religious talismanic object is taken by Saladin. And so that really is something that horrifies and shocks Western Europe. So the news of this great defeat of the Franks of the Near East, the Crusaders, um, let's call them, uh, trickles back or, or probably actually rushes back yeah. to Western <laughs> Europe. Um, and the reaction to this in, in Western Europe at a time where the appetite for crusading was dimming somewhat, let's say, you know, this is, we're now 80, 88 years after the, the triumph of the First Crusade. What's the reaction in Western Europe when they hear about the disaster at Hattin and the loss of the True Cross? When Western Europeans start hearing reports of what's happened at the Battle of Hattin, they're absolutely horrified. The loss of the True Cross, the absolute destruction of the, of the Frankish field army, they know that Jerusalem is now incredibly vulnerable and, and almost certain to fall to Saladin. So there is an awareness, and I'm sure Saladin knew this, that he's basically pressed the button the starting button on what's going to be the Third Crusade. And this will be, over the next few years, an enormous response because, of course, Saladin then a few weeks after the Battle of Hattin does recover Jerusalem for Islam. The Pope is said to have died of a heart attack when he heard of this news. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it, it, the, the timing fits well enough. And so Western Europe 
this terrible blow. I mean, you cannot imagine a bigger strike against the heart of a faith, the loss of its its central city. And the response is the Third Crusade, probably the biggest reaction since the First Crusade. Absolutely. I mean, big, on a bigger scale than the Second Crusade. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've got eventually taking the cross, Richard the Lionheart of England goes, Philip Augustus of France, and the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa of Germany. These are the, the great crowned heads of Western Europe. And so Saladin has got to face this. He knows it's a bit like sort of waiting for the bomb to drop. Once he's captured Jerusalem and taken a lot of the coastal cities, he's then got to try to consolidate his position and then just wait for this huge wave or series of waves to come at him. And that's what he's got to resist. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. After Saladin's capture of Jerusalem, he is the son of Satan. He is the sixth of the seven-headed beast of the apocalypse. He is a very bad man. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. We're used to hearing the story of the Third Crusade. In some ways, it's the most familiar of the Crusades uh, in the West because Richard the Lionheart and and the Siege of Acre and and all the famous um, details, particularly of of Richard the Lionheart's um, heroism and barbarity. Maybe tell us the story from the other perspective. You know, once Saladin's finished waiting and these waves of, of troops from Western Europe turn up, how does he react? How does he respond? Because it, the Third Crusade doesn't succeed in retaking Jerusalem. So, so what's the key to Saladin's response? The, the main 
I suppose, focus of the Third Crusade is a city called Acre, which is now in northern Israel. And there's a, a near two-year siege of Acre. Saladin's troops are inside it, but the king of Jerusalem makes a very bold move and besieges them. And then Saladin besieges the troops of the king of Jerusalem. So it's like three layers of, of an onion. And this is, is the focus for almost two years of on and off warfare, with the Crusaders being able to arrive by sea and reinforce their people, and Saladin desperately trying to defeat them and to sort of liberate his garrison in Acre. And so I, I guess sort of psychologically, it's a terribly sort of difficult phase for Saladin because he's had momentum for, for literally decades. He's been on the move largely successfully, particularly in recent years, conquering places, being able to reward people. And suddenly that momentum is stalled badly. And while, of course, for a long time, he has the gloss and the glory of recovering Jerusalem for Islam. And believe me, uh, his administrators have told everybody they know about it and written glorious poems circulating the success and obviously the, the divine approval for what has happened. But he is stuck outside this, this city in coastal location, trying to encourage his men, trying to keep supporters with him. They don't all desert him with this sort of lack of momentum. And that's a really difficult thing to do, to stay in a sort of siege situation month after month after month. It has to be said, both sides in the winter tend to kind of just down tools. It gets so muddy and wet, you, you find that really they just kind of leave each other alone for a while. Uh, but then come the spring, it all, all kicks off again. Now, eventually... Uh, Acre Falls, taken back by, you know, by uh, Philip Augustus and, and Richard the Lionheart, um, the culmination of a big quarrel between those two in particular. Richard the Lionheart massacres a lot of prisoners from Acre, sets out on a march down the coast, liberates a lot of cities. We get to this point then where you have Richard and his army on the one side considering a, a move on Jerusalem, and Saladin and his brother Aladil, sometimes called Safadin, um, on the other side, and really they've sort of fought each other to a standstill, haven't they? I mean, what what happens at that point? I think it's very interesting that the campaigns after the, the fall of Acre, militarily, the Crusaders under Richard's very, very successful, powerful generalship are, are, have the upper hand militarily. But Saladin is able to sort of slow them up from time to time, and he's got enough of a, of a hold on Jerusalem. He's re-fortified it enough that Richard is very unwilling to actually try and strike at it because he's convinced that if he, even if he takes it, he won't be able to hold it. And Richard is, is a man of colossal ego and sense of honour, and he does not want to be the man, even though he takes Jerusalem, then abandons it because, of course, he's got to go back to England at some point. So uh, it's, a, it's a very sort of attritional process. Uh, a big part, some of it's fighting. There's also a big diplomatic element. And it's Richard and it's, it's Saladin, Saladin's brother, with whom he has all the negotiations. Richard and Saladin never actually met. Saladin does not want to meet somebody with whom he may then have to fight. It just, it's a sort of etiquette thing for him. So that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the most famous, um, but sadly mythical images we have of not just a third crusade, but of crusading in general, is this picture of Richard and Saladin, the two noblest leaders of their day, kind of either coming head to head, you know, those old tiles have been found, I think, in Chertsey yes. Abbey, showing them jousting or negotiating or whatever it is that they're doing, having some sort of, you know, tw 12th century bromance. Absolute myth. They never met. 
the the relationship is between Richard and, and Safadin, Saladin's brother, and they get along pretty well. Uh, I think Safadin obviously has some of Saladin's charm. He's also a very cultured man. He likes music. Uh, they they enjoy talking about that. So they enjoy hunting and exchanging gifts, and that's all part of sort of high level diplomacy. Uh, there seems to be a sort of a genuine relationship with them. There's awful an awful lot of finding out what really you'll give way on, having a look at your camp, what strengths, what sort of the psychological condition of your army is. It's a lot of kind of like feeling out the opposition at the same time. But I do think there is, in the figure of of Safadin, something that Western Europeans like. This is the age of chivalry coming on strong. And this man, with obviously Saladin as a sort of dominant figure behind him, has many of the, the sort of characteristics that a chivalric Western European knight will love and respect. Is there any truth to the suggestion that there were negotiations to marry Safadin uh, to Richard's sister, the Plantagenet princess and former queen of Sicily, uh, Joan or Joanne? I, I think it did happen because it's, it's a way of, again, sort of working out what the other side will give. There are marriages in Spain between Christians and Muslims, uh, and there are in the Near East between some Eastern Christians and, 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 and Muslims. So it's not as utterly ridiculous as it sounds, although it has to be said it would have been a very serious uh, leap for Joanne and Safadin to marry. But I think it's all, all part of the sort of working out what you'll give up, what we can what we can achieve here. There are times in this negotiation where it feels incredibly sort of modern. I don't know whether that's me thinking in sort of in an accidentally patronising way about the medieval period, which I hope I'm not. Um, but in the sense of Jerusalem would be divided between Christianity and Islam at that time. With We know the Holy Sepulchre is the important bit for you. We know the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa are the important bits for you. And there'll be a division and we'll have a sort of passageway to the coast and we'll split the lands. And that feels a, a very nice modern uh, kind of solution. And that is up for grabs in the negotiation at, at one time, but then the power balance shifts and it, and it moves away. And in fact, not too different from the solution that actually arrives, you know, uh, 40, 30, 40 years later between Alchemil and Frederick Hohenstaff. I mean, in terms of quote unquote power sharing in Jerusalem, they've got the idea yes. between them, Saladin and Richard. Yeah. And, and, and given that they're both equally strong, or turning it another way, equally weak then a division is something that'll work. And I think the Third Crusade, let alone the sort of years before Richard turns up and then the sort of high-pressure phase when he's there, I think the two of them have really, you know, punched the hell out of each other for so long. They are both exhausted. They're both ill. Saladin is is ill for year upon year. The last seven years of his life, he is so often so ill. Do we know with what? Well, it's, it's described as colic, which I suppose makes us think of babies or, or horses. Um, but it, I, it sounds more like a sort of irritable bowel syndrome to an extraordinary degree. Uh, he's, he's clearly, his immune system is wrecked because he has boils all over his, from the waist downwards, all over his sort of uh, thighs and legs. And it's also quite interesting, you, you look at the sources and they, they do suggest his sort of mental health is suffering. I suppose we think of mental health as a very kind of modern thing to think about. But if you if you look at them closely, they do talk about the mental exhaustion of of this struggle. And he is trying to let's let's think of his responsibilities here. He's trying to hold this fragile coalition of the Muslim Near East, including Nur al-Din's slightly irritated family, 
Uh, he has the responsibility of being the sort of prime warrior of Sunni Islam and resisting this, this hulking great crusade that's trying to take Jerusalem back. That is, let alone the day-to-day management of it all, an extraordinary responsibility. And it, and it does take its toll on him. Well, it takes its toll because not long after Richard leaves the Holy Land at the end of the Third Crusade, having you know nearly but not quite uh, got to Jerusalem, um, Saladin dies. Yeah. I mean, he barely outlives the Third Crusade. Yeah, he, d- he dies on the 4th of March, 1193, and the Crusade went home sort of October 1192. So, yeah, he, he's, he's, I think, pretty well exhausted by the whole episode. And then very briefly, because I want to talk a little bit before before we finish about the you know the sources and, and the legacy. Um, what happens in the immediate aftermath of, of Saladin's death? Because he's he's assembled this absolutely astonishing um, political entity, which is to hold together the thing that hadn't happened for you know for decades, centuries, to hold together under his rule Egypt and Syria, and to push the Franks to the brink of destruction. Um, does that survive him, or is that is that just like Henry II's great Plantagenet empire, just the work of one man? That's, you know, barely possible for anyone else to hold together. It's it's the work of one family, but it's Saladin at the top of that that holds it together. His his force of personality and his his success and the group of people around him. But he has produced sixteen or seventeen sons. And that, obviously, while admirable as um, arranging your succession and some Western European rulers would have been extremely um, admiring of that, does, of course, have complications in that what are you going to give them all to do, or not necessarily all of them. So there is, he's trying to set it up in the later stages of his life, sort of regional responsibilities for them. But it very quickly fragments. Who becomes sultan after him? Well, there's various rulers in, in Damascus, in Egypt, in northern Syria. It's in fact Safadin emerges from a very chaotic and a period of infighting uh, to be the sort of preeminent ruler based in Egypt because that's where the money is. Um, but really the Ayyubid Empire breaks into about four or five constituent parts. And by 1250, so you know, 60 years after Saladin's death, uh, it, it's, it's almost got to the end of the line. Um, it's sort of dispossessed by the Mamluks, who are the great sort of slave warriors under the Baibars who end up turfing the Crusaders out for good in 1291. So it's not a, a, an enormous legacy in the dynastic sense that he leaves. But let's talk about his legacy um, in terms of his, maybe myth's not quite the right word, but memory at least. Um, how was he remembered in the decades that followed his death? And to what extent had he control how he would be remembered? In the decades after Saladin's death, a number of lives of Saladin are written. They're produced by his inner circle. And these show him in generally as in a very positive light, touching upon his characteristics of piety, generosity, mercy, uh, his, his, his leadership abilities. And these help to kind of sustain and bolster his lifetime achievements. And these are, are popular and, and, and uh, copied quite a lot. There's also uh, poetry and praise of him uh, as well, which again is, is sort of well circulated and well remembered. But because he had assembled this, this coalition, this empire, and recovered Jerusalem, he's held up from time to time as, as, as the sort of benchmark of decisions made in his, in his age, decisions um, from his rule are, are there as, um, as I say, benchmarks. You mentioned poetry then, and in, in your book, you've touched on quite a lot of sources that are not 
often, if ever, used, particularly in, in Western lives or descriptions of Saladin. Talk a little bit about the poetry you've used. This was one of the, the most interesting things in writing this book, was to move beyond the, the very rich narratives and try and, and say something else. And I was very lucky that some scholars in Oxford, Professor Julia Bray, Professor Emily Savage-Smith, very kindly gave me access to some of their, their translations and their ongoing work uh, that, that brings in a lot of poetry. And also a man called Dr. Osman Latif, who works on jihad poetry. So I was able to, to look at these sources. And, and poetry is such an integral part of the culture of, of the Near East then and, and now in many respects. And I think it's often been ignored, perhaps certainly by crusade historians, because some of it's very, very complicated. Um, it doesn't necessarily say who's doing what to whom, um, but it's a really incredibly rich source of, of, of the culture, the ideas, the images that are moving around the Sultan. And on one path, you see this enormous generation of jihad poetry, which really gives you the sort of the sense of, of, of the desire for Islam to recover Jerusalem. But there's also poetry that's, um, that is not at all uh, religious, that's very satirical. Uh, some of it's quite obscene. Uh, some of it really is, uh, or some of it's very mundane. You can, one of Saladin's soldiers writes to him basically saying, uh, look, boss, I, I'd like a better farm a bit closer to where I'm based. And that's in verse. So you write to the Sultan Saladin as a humble soldier um, saying, uh, I'd like you to change where, where, where my farm is. And so that really is a sort of extraordinary sort of leap. But I think taken together with, with the jihad poetry and then with the much more secular poetry, you get a really kind of rich idea of the group of people and the culture that's around Saladin. Some of this is written to him during the Siege of Acre. Some of it's written when he's ruling Egypt. It's, it's a really interesting um, aspect or dimension, I suppose, to his story. And I was, I was um, very lucky, as I say, to be able to bring that out. And it was a very enjoyable experience looking at all that poetry being able to write about it. Well, it certainly gives a, a real richness to your um, your depiction, your portrait of Saladin um, in your book. And, and I think having written books about medieval history myself, I know it's so hard to get that kind of texture, to get that feel of, of, of a time. And, and the use of the poetry is, it, it really, really comes across in, in, in your book. Um, was there anyone who didn't like Saladin? <laughs> yeah, quite a lot of people, actually. <laughs> what did they say about him? Well, starting with Nur al-Din's family, you know, he's a usurper. So you, you've got that. The Caliph of Baghdad, a head of Sunni Islam, is not a huge supporter of Saladin, which, which sounds odd. Well, you know, short... he's, he's the man, isn't he, who gives him the title of Sultan of Egypt and Syria? He won't give him all the titles because he worries that he's usurping Nur al-Din's family. He's also, in a sense, it's a, it's a paradox. The more successful Saladin gets, the more the caliph actually worries that, that the Ayyubids will start looking east and potentially taking over control of, of Baghdad. So he's a kind of, he wants what Saladin does, but he, he, he also at the same time doesn't want it, uh, doesn't want Saladin to become too powerful as well. So it's always an incredibly lukewarm response to Saladin's appeals for help. I mean, Saladin, again, is pretty diplomatic in how he deals with it. He doesn't want to alienate the, the head of Sunni Islam. Some of the people around him are a bit more forthright, it has to be said. Another group with whom Saladin does not get on at all are, are the Shia, seen by, by many of the Sunni as, as heretics. And if you are 
the champion of Sunni Islam, as Nur al-Din did, you end up fighting the Shia, attacking the Shia. Not in a sort of systematic way of trying to wipe them out or anything like that, but you will want to remove them, shall we say, from your cities, say in Aleppo or Damascus. And then there's also the assassins, uh, who are a particular splinter group of Shia Islam who have a, an enclave in northern Syria. But there's also the fact in Saladin's case, I mean, that there's a slight justification on the Shia side for disliking him in that he gets rid of the Fatimid Shia caliph in Cairo and all sort of in, in prisons. And he does. Stop and, yeah, he gets rid of the, the caliph. Once Saladin has t- become the vizier of Egypt, 1169, a couple of years later, again, a bit of luck for Saladin, the young, healthy Shia caliph dies. And then Saladin is able to say, right, we are not going to replace him. I will, uh, you know, there will not be a Shia caliph in Cairo anymore. And yes, that down the centuries, particularly I have to say in, in the modern era, the sort of sectarian tensions between the Sunni and the Shia that we hear so much about today. There are history books written by Shia historians that say Saladin was, was an absolute fraud. He was an ally of the Crusaders. He was very, very bad indeed. And I think that's an interesting comment, perhaps more on the modern times, because if you look at the 12th, 13th century sources, a few of the Shia historians are very complimentary about Saladin. Take us to the Western sources and how Saladin is perceived in the West. Let's start with in the Middle Ages. I mean, is there really this sense that over there in the East is a kind of a noble enemy who's been worth fighting or is he kind of pilloried? I mean, what's the sense of him? It changes. After Saladin's capture of Jerusalem, he is the son of Satan. He is the sixth of the seven-headed beast of the apocalypse. He is a very bad man. And this is the image that Richard the Lionheart has when he goes to, to the Near East. But what is extraordinary is that within a few years, that image changes. Not, not for everybody, but it is largely transformed. And that, I think, is in part because the Third Crusade lasts so long that a lot of Westerners, and, and Richard has a kind of press corps with him, people who write up his exploits, they realise that Saladin actually is somebody whom they can, in many, many senses, admire. This is the age of chivalry and Saladin's um, virtues or attributes of, of piety, generosity, mercy, particularly towards women, uh, bravery with his troops or, or sticking with his troops, all things that they want. And you have to remember, Saladin has beaten them as well. <laughs> so he's got to be got to be pretty good. And coupled with the diplomacy of, of Richard and, and Saffordin, Saladin's brother, this positive image is, is created and comes back to Western Europe to the point where early 13th century, there's a poem written by a German court poet to his, his boss, uh, the, the King of Germany, holding Saladin up as a benchmark for generosity, shaming the King of Germany against Saladin. Say, so, hang on, under 20 years ago, he was the son of Satan. How can you be doing that? So it's a really... Uh, interesting change. And what about today? You know, you've, you've, you've mentioned that there are sheer histories which demonise Saladin um, for, for reasons we've already discussed. How is Saladin remembered or written about by historians across the spectrum today, do you think? Saladin's memory and legacy survived in the Near East down the centuries. It wasn't perhaps a sort of the most glowing light that was there, but you can trace, and that's one of the things I enjoyed doing in this book, is tracing uh, references, anecdotes, remembrances of Saladin down the centuries through the 14th, 15th, 16th century. Say in, in Ottoman Istanbul, he's held as, as a great ruler, a man who 
current rulers should aspire to. And there's a nice throwaway line by a historian. All the books of history relate how, how great a ruler Saladin was. It's kind of like, you all know this. And it's not saying it's because he took Jerusalem back from Westerners. It's because he's a great ruler. And so in a sense, that diffusion and survival of his image as the man who recovered Jerusalem, but as a, as a ruler to aspire to, endures. When you get to, say, the 19th, 20th centuries, when Western Europe starts actively having a presence in the Mediterranean through the French, British, and Egypt, for example, then I suppose that the context of a man who drew our people together, resisted and recovered Jerusalem for Islam through the Westerners out in many respects, is somebody who they want to aspire to, somebody who they can identify with. And then his legacy becomes much more, from the dry tinder, as it were, that was there, his legacy becomes much more active. But you've also got, uh, on the Western side, people like Kaiser Wilhelm II goes to Jerusalem and Damascus, 1898, and lays this sort of enormous, is it bronze wreath on Saladin's tomb? Yes, I mean, the Kaiser admires Saladin, uh, or, or purports to. Uh, I think he very much uh, is sort of currying favour with his local audience there. Uh, and it's said that he sort of says from one great ruler to another. In fact, recent research by Professor Carol Hillenbrand has shown that actually it's the Kaiser saying from one really great man to somebody not quite as great. So there's not an equality in it. But it's, it's a, a recognition, a sort of a call out, if you like, of Saladin to the Near East. Down the centuries, though, I think you know, this isn't a the sole sort of memory of it, he has been remembered down the centuries, and that's something that I argue very strongly in the book. But in the sort of changes in, in the culture in the Near East, late 19th, early 20th century, in newspapers, drama, literature, you find plays about Saladin, you find some of the medieval lives of Saladin are, are put in newspapers in, in sort of story form, and then you find uh, more poetry, art, moving into film. He's there as a widely diffused sort of cultural figure representing, I think, the hopes and the wishes of the people of the Near East. He's a sort of superhero. For, for he is, yes. And, and then, of course, then he gets adopted by people ranging from, from Islamists to Arab nationalists. So in the case of the latter, uh, you've got people like Nasser identifying with him, Nasser ruling Egypt and Syria, 1958 to 61, the United Arab Republic, bringing them together. Uh, Sadat does it, does it a little bit, Yasser Arafat, the Assad dynasty in Syria, Saddam Hussein. So a lot of these people um, draw on Saladin's memory. Equally Islamists, uh, down to the present day people like more recent times, Bin Laden as well. And uh, in a sense, I suppose, uh, Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, who was the other day, although not uh, dropping Saladin's name was still saying the war against the Crusaders goes on. Yes. Um, IS tend, tend not to invoke Saladin so much that it's very much using the prism of the crusade. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for that fascinating tour through Saladin's life. Um, your book is The Life and Legend of the Sultan Saladin, and uh, it, it says in the blurb and the copy, I've got at any rate, it's an epic story of empire building and bloody conflict, a groundbreaking biography of one of history's most venerated military and religious heroes. Um, but I sort of rather like the term that was used for one of the original biographies um, written around the time of Saladin's life, which I think fits yours just as well, which is it's a rare and excellent history um, of Saladin. I've certainly enjoyed talking to you about Saladin, and I hope that all the listeners out there will go and buy and enjoy your book. So thank you very much. Thank you.
That was Jonathan Phillips in conversation with Dan Jones. Jonathan's book, The Life and Legend of the Sultan Saladin, is out now published by Bodley Head. And you can read a piece by Jonathan on Saladin in the latest issue of BBC World Histories magazine, which is available in all good retailers and directly from us via buysubscriptions.com. Meanwhile, Dan Jones's next book, Crusaders, The Epic History of the Wars for the Holy Lands, is due out in September from Head of Zeus. And Dan will be speaking about the book at our History Weekend events this autumn at Chester and Winchester. Find out more details at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be talking to Edward Carey about Madame Toussaint.